Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. I have some prepared remarks. Uh, Karen Alderman Harbert is President and Chief Executive Officer of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Institute for 21st Century Energy. In this capacity, Harbert leads the Institute's efforts to build support for meaningful energy action nationally and internationally through policy development, education, and advocacy. At the Institute, she was instrumental in formulating 88 specific policy recommendations that were presented to President Obama and the members of the 111th Congress. Harbert is the former Assistant Secretary for Policy and International Affairs at the U.S. Department of Energy. She was the primary policy advisor to the Secretary of Energy and to the Department on Domestic and International Energy Issues, including climate change, fossil, nuclear, and renewable energy and energy efficiency. Harbert, also a member of Department of Energy's Executive Board, as well as the Credit Review Board. She negotiated and managed bilateral and multilateral agreements with other countries and international agencies to further the nation's energy security and research and development objectives. She was also vice chairman of the International Energy Agency. Please join me in welcoming Karen Harbert. Thank you, Tom, and thank you, uh, Rachel, for having me back again. I was actually uh, fortunate enough to present to the World Affairs Council in Houston last year, and so I obviously didn't bomb because now you've invited me to be in Dallas, so uh, that's a good thing. Hopefully my track record will only continue to improve. Normally when I, and I do a lot of public speaking, but when I do it in the evening, it's normally I'm standing between you and the bar, which makes my speeches very short. So now you're in for a real treat and some torture because you've already had your drink. So there's no excuse for me to speed up. Uh, and the bar is still open. If I'm saying some really scary things and sobering you up, please feel free to go back and have another drink because I know I will after this. Um, I went to what uh, what Tom didn't mention is is that and I'm always resident, resi hesitant to say this when I'm in Texas, but I went to school in Houston. Sorry, it's better than saying I went to school in Ohio or Oklahoma here. Uh, but I went to uh, I went to school in Houston, and it's always glad to be back in Texas and uh, feel that I can talk to people that actually have a very good, sophisticated, and rational understanding of energy and energy issues, and I wish that we could just clone all of you and take you to other parts of the country, and more particularly back to Washington, where we need more rational voices uh, in the energy arena. So uh, if you can find yourselves a one-way ticket to Washington to help me out, I would greatly appreciate it. 
So this is not lost on anybody why energy is on the top of everybody's mind right now across the country. I mean, gasoline prices are high. And as Americans, we don't think about energy a whole lot. You all do a lot more than most. But we think about it sort of only when we go to the gas station or when we pay our utility bill. And both sides of that are giving us a little bit of unease. So gas prices are up. In many parts around the country, utility bills are on the way up and people are starting to talk about energy. And of course, that makes the politicians talk about energy, so everybody wants to talk about energy these days. For me, that's an opportunity. I hope that we are able to seize that opportunity and get some rational outcomes. I'm a little bit cynical because I'm from Washington that it will happen immediately, uh, but we're certainly going to do what we can. But before we talk about what's happening in the United States, I think we have to recognize we don't live in the United States uh, you know, of, of, of an island, you know, in an energy island. We live uh, in a very much a global energy world, and demand around the world for energy is going to go up by over 50% between now and 2035. What's different about that is that 90% of that demand is coming from the developing world. Not from us, not from Europe, but from the developing world. And a billion and a half people, a billion and a half people don't have access to modern energy services. They don't have access to energy services at all. And two billion people are underserved when it comes to energy. So we have a huge energy poverty gap out there. Demand for electricity is going to go up by over 75% around the world. That's an astronomical number when you think about it. And it's going to take a lot of money to meet that demand, $38 trillion. And that's even a lot of money by Washington standards. I think the question for us is, is any of that money going to be coming here? Do we have the fiscal policies, the legislative framework, the regulations in place, the tax policies in place? to attract that investment here, or is it going to go elsewhere? And I think that's a very fundamental question, because when you look at the demand picture, it's exploding everywhere. It's going to take a lot of money, and is any of that money going to come here to help us meet our energy demand? Forward. <laughs> so I was going to talk about the demand picture, and uh, if you have to do it manually, I'll apologize. There we go. Um, the left-hand part of this slide is the, de is the developed world, and the right-hand side is the developing world. And you will notice that on the right-hand side, uh, there's a lot more demand. The blue part is the rising demand in the developing world. China is now the largest consumer of energy in the world. It is also the largest greenhouse gas emitter in the world. India is growing voraciously. But what this slide doesn't tell you is a really interesting story. If you look at it, you will see the second fastest growing region for energy demand is the Middle East. And that's really important as we think about the global oil market. We just came out of Arab Spring. We went into Arab winter. We're going back into Arab Spring. And we have no idea what Arab summer and fall are going to bring us. But we know it's going to be more unrest. And that means more pressure on the leadership in the Middle East, particularly in resource-rich countries, to spend more of money at home to satisfy the needs of their citizens. That means spending more of their molecules at home to create manufacturing jobs, industries, to find ways to stimulate economic opportunity in the Middle East. So more molecules are staying in the Middle East, and they need more money. That means they also have to sell more. And they're going to be selling to their next customer. And who is their next customer? It is not us. So you're looking at the Middle East, looking at the Middle East itself, and you're looking at them looking at Asia. And so the entire global market, it doesn't move quickly, but it is moving. 
And the one that used to be centered around us is now centered around a change looking towards Asia. And so as we look at that, we have to think to ourselves, what are we doing here in this part of the world, in this hemisphere, in North America, to inoculate ourselves against that fundamental change in the global oil market? Are we prepared to deal with it? And if so, what are we prepared? How are we preparing ourselves? So we look at demand around the world for liquid fuels, and I'm going to spend some time on that because I'm here in Texas, and so uh, I thought that might be appropriate. The total part of that slide is how much liquid fuel we're going to need to fuel our transportation sector and other needs between now and 2030. The blue part of that slide is all the existing oil fields as we know them, and they sort of look like a ski slope because a lot of the big oil fields as we know them today are going into decline. We have to find a lot of new oil. It's geologically difficult places, geographically undesirable places, places that don't really like uh, U.S. investment. The middle part of that slide, that white part, that meringue pie slice kind of looking thing, is how much new oil we need to find between now and 2030. That's 18 years from now. That's six times the capacity of Saudi Arabia. It is an enormous amount of oil that we are going to need to find, bring onto the market. We, and I don't mean, but the world needs to have found and needs to bring on, online to actually fuel all of our needs. And if that doesn't happen, what happens? Well, the price is obviously going to continue to go up, and we're going to have serious conflicts over the availability of that resource. So that we need to keep in perspective of what's happening in the Middle East, what's happening in Asia, and how much we need to find. So let's talk about the U.S. In the U.S., we know that we're going to, our overall demand is going to go up by approximately 20% over this time. Our demand for gasoline is not going to be as much. But there's a lot of talk in Washington that we're in this huge energy transformation. And when you look at the government statistics, it's not true. You look at what we look like today and what we look like in 2035, and we roughly look the same. It's the same chairs at the dinner table. Everybody's chairs are still there 25 years from now. Everybody's chair is a little bit different in size, but nobody has left the table and gone home. That means for many decades, you all know it, we know it, fossil fuels are here to stay. You can't turn around an energy economy like ours or the world's overnight. And so when we look at that, I mean, oil slightly declines in our energy mix, gas goes up slightly, nuclear is about the same, uh, and we have some growth in renewables. But everybody's chair sort of grows at the table. Again, is that realistic? This is a forecast, and I'll tell you that every single United States government forecast on energy has been wrong. Every single one of them, because forecasting is a horrible business. That's why you will never hear me say anything at what I think the price of oil is going to be or price of natural gas, because I will most definitely be wrong. But this is the best guess knowing what we know today. But that's within the parameters of all the policies. You know, we don't look that much different, do we? Well, let's talk about what's happening uh, and why that forecast is likely going to be wrong. Let's talk about what's going to happen in terms of are we going to expand oil production? What's going to happen with natural gas? In, here in Texas, you're sitting on a tremendous amount of natural gas, the Eagleford, the Barnett. We look all across our country. We're sitting on resources we didn't even know existed five years ago. Are we going to build any new nuclear plants in this country? A lot of the nuclear reactors that we have are starting to get to the end of their lifespan. Are we going to build more or are we not going to build more? The rest of the world is, are we? What's Fukushima, post-Fukushima look like in the United States? Are we going to build any more coal plants in this country? Right now, there is one coal-fired power plant under construction in this country and no more planned. 
and we'll talk about what that means and why. Yet we've got 400 years worth of coal in this country. Are we gonna use it or what's gonna happen to it? And I'll show you what's happening to it right now. What's happening to renewables? Here in Texas, you've got a lot of wind, but overall, between wind and solar, it's less than 3% of our electricity in this country. It is less than 1% worldwide. There's a huge opportunity for growth, but at what scale uh, can that actually happen? And in what timetable? And then because I have the podium, I get to tell you my two soapbox issues. Uh, people power, what does that mean? Well, in any great challenge, America's risen up and conquered them through innovation, and innovation is born through people and technology. Today, we are graduating fewer and fewer engineers every day. For every engineer we graduate, Europe, that great bastion of innovation, graduates four. For every engineer we graduate here, China graduates nine. The state of Florida last year graduated 62 PhD engineers. 50% of minorities don't graduate from high school. The 21st century depends on innovation and technology and energy and IT and pharmaceutical and everything. And yet that fundamental building block of our competitiveness, of our health of our economy, of our quality of life is the one thing we're underinvesting in. That is what worries me more than anything else in the energy picture. Are we going to have that intellectual feedstock to make the breakthroughs over time that we're going to need? We're witnessing what the breakthrough of hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling is doing. What's going to be that next breakthrough? And is it going to be born here or somewhere else? So that's one of the things that I worry about a lot. The other one I worry about is the United States is now the real, true, official banana republic. Who knows what banana is? Build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone. <laughs> so if you guys are still using NIMBY, you are just no, you're not hip any longer. We don't use the words NIMBY anymore, not in my backyard, it is now banana. Build absolutely nothing near anyone. You can't get anything built to save your life in this country. It's not that we just don't want a coal plant or a nuclear plant, we can't build transmission lines, we can't build wind plant, we can't build anything. And we know demand for energy is going up. We know we want to get back into manufacturing. We know we want to get the economy back up on, and running. We're going to need more energy. We don't want to build it here. We don't want to build it there. We don't want it in my state. And that's going to be a big problem. And we'll show what it looks like. I've got a great map of what's not happening. OK. So let's talk about oil uh, offshore and onshore first. Every year, as you all know, the Department of Interior issues a five-year leasing plan. The, the five-year leasing plan for 2012 to 2017 just came out. 87% of offshore waters of the United States are not leased. Our five-year leasing plan looks like this for the next five years. No one is allowed to do any leasing off of the Atlantic coast, no leasing off the Pacific coast, and areas that were previously open off the coast of Alaska are now closed. Keep in mind what's happening in the Middle East and in Asia, and we've got tremendous resources off of our shores, and we are limiting ourselves to very specific areas in the Gulf of Mexico, who by the own government's forecasts, even next year is gonna decline even further than it declined this year, based on activity in the Gulf, and we're shutting down other areas that were previously open. Doesn't sound like a very good policy. We should be looking at those areas and finding ways to bring those resources online. And this is what it looks like onshore. And this is all the shale plays in North America. We are sitting on untold amounts of natural gas, shale oil, and longer term oil shale in the middle part of our country. 
The very first act, and this is not a partisan comment because this is not a Republican or a Democratic energy problem, it is an American problem. But I have to say the very first act of the Department of Interior under the current secretary uh, was to cancel 77 leases in the middle part of our country that had already been bought, paid for by the private sector, invested in, and they canceled those leases. And they said, you know what, the leasing process was not rigorous enough in terms of the environmental review. Of the leases that were canceled, 19 have been returned. The other ones will not be returned. They overturned uh, a previously existing executive order from the middle part of our country that was going to lease 2 million acres for oil shale and shale oil. They just reduced that acreage by three quarters. 82% of onshore federal lands are not leased today. 82%. We have lots and lots of opportunity all across our country. We didn't know this before. This is what happened when we figured out what the combination of horizontal drilling and, hydro uh, and fracking came, you know, what that would yield for us. And these are places, if you look, uh, all across the country that really didn't have good opportunities. You look at the Rust Belt. I mean, there was no opportunities when steel left areas in, in Pennsylvania. Now you're seeing them flourish. Places in Ohio, West Virginia, not New York. Uh, places all across uh, North Dakota. North Dakota has the lowest unemployment rate in our country, 3%. North Dakota, sorry to say, is now the second largest energy producing state in our country. Second to Alaska. You guys got to pick up, got to pick it up. Come on, you're losing your game here. Just on gas, there is a huge opportunity here uh, in terms of our ability to improve uh, the, the, the picture for, for shale gas in this country. You look, if we didn't have shale gas, what we now know we have five years ago, we didn't know we have. When I worked at the Department of Energy, I was permitting liquefied natural gas import terminals. And now we're talking about permitting them for export. But that blue part is what we didn't under, I mean, that brown part on top is what we didn't understand that we had. We thought we were running out of natural gas. Those were the statistics that I was looking at. Remember, every forecast is wrong. I was thinking, oh my God, look at this. We're going down, look at the, look at the curve. We've got to go find some natural gas. I go to Trinidad, I'm going all over. I'm going to Qatar, we're trying to find natural gas. We're building terminals. Now we've got the brown part. It's a huge opportunity for the United States in terms of self-sufficiency. And we've got to make sure that we're going to be able to use that rationally, responsibly uh, over time. So we hear a lot about, you know what, we're okay, drilling is up in this country. And that is a technically accurate fact. What this slide is to show you is that the blue part is about federal lands and the green part is about non-federal lands, private lands. Drilling is down on federal lands. The blue part, you see that curve that is starting to come down, and you see that bend that is going up in non-federal lands. The good news is, is that the industry has found ways to get onto private lands because it can't get access to public lands. That is an unsustainable trajectory because so much of our resources are located on public lands that ultimately if we're going to be able to be self-sufficient and have more resources come into our economy, we're going to have to bend that blue curve back up again. But that means we're going to have to open up some areas for exploration. Fortunately, as I said, they've been able to go on to private lands as made great revenues for landowners, great state revenues, but over time we're going to have to actually rationalize the way those curves are going. And if we did, we would see some tremendous benefit to our economy. 
we would see about a, billion, a million and a half jobs uh, in the next 20 years by opening up in a reasonable time frame parts of those onshore and offshore uh, resources. And keep in mind, 1.4 million might not sound like a lot of jobs, but it is a lot of jobs. In the next 10 years, we have to create in this country 20 million jobs. That accounts for the people who are unemployed, underemployed, have stopped looking for work, and let's not forget that really important category, the people that are coming into the workforce, that are graduating and coming into the workforce. 20 million jobs. So I think a million and a half jobs are a lot of jobs. And we'll show uh, in a minute what, uh, how many jobs uh, are currently being supported by the energy industry. And it would create a lot of revenue, $800 billion worth of revenue. Now, I like that number a lot, and it's not because I'm a wonk in Washington. It's because that number reminds me of something. Does it remind you of anything? It's the same number as the stimulus package. So here we now have created a stimulus package, not on the back of you and me, the taxpayer, but because of opening up for private and productive uh, investment in our country. We're going to show you another uh, stimulus package in a minute. But that's what we try and help the government understand, that this is a win-win. We would be contributing to bringing down the deficit, it would be productive investment, it would be jobs, and we would stop sending so much money to people that really don't like us very much. I think that sounds like a pretty good policy right now particularly when everyone around the world is trying to invest in other people's energy because they know they're going to need it over the long term. We have it, and we're not really using it to the best of our ability. And it does create a lot of jobs. I mean, already, I was talking about Pennsylvania, they've already created 115,000 jobs in Pennsylvania and are on track to create 100, I'm sorry, they already have created 140,000 jobs, and they're almost about to double that in the next eight years. In Ohio, they're going to create 200,000 jobs. These are places I was just up there. I mean, it's incredible. I was standing in West Greene County, Pennsylvania. It was a one-stop sign town. They now have a new wing to the high school. They're hiring teachers. People are happy to stay there. They have jobs. It's a complete turnaround for that community. Uh, and something they couldn't even ever envision, you know, scantly 10 years ago. And of course, here in the Gulf, there's tons of opportunity as well. But guess what? We're not the only game in town. Uh, this is a look at all those countries in white of where there are resource basins. And as people as we're looking at uh, where people can actually invest, we're not the only game in town. It's very interesting when you look at how much we have between us and Canada, huge opportunities between our two countries that we should be using. But you could go to Brazil, you could go to South Africa, you can go to Poland, you can go to Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, you name it, you can go there, Mozambique. So we have to ask ourselves is, are we making the right decisions to attract the capital here, or is a company saying, you know what, it is too hard to do business in Alaska, I'm going to go to Mozambique. It is too hard to go to the Marcellus, I'm going to go to Mozambique. And right now you're seeing a lot of people take their money and go elsewhere, because the permitting process is easier, the contracts are easier, the surety of contracts are easier or more certain, and that's a really, really bad story for America. So we have to realize that we are not, not only setting the price any longer, we are no longer the only opportunity in town. Capital is looking for a comfortable home, and right now the capital is not necessarily choosing us as its primary destination. 
And on the natural gas side of things, there's a really good reason for that as well. I mean, we have obviously very no, low natural gas prices here. And this is an opportunity that's sort of twofold. People can either go to the Middle East or to Australia or to other places and export to Japan, export to Australia. We can get a much higher price, or we could be doing some of that here, producing some of it here and actually exporting some of it to some of these higher price markets. Not all of it. We're going to still have a huge demand for natural gas here, but our industry would certainly benefit from being able to sell some of this into these higher price markets. But if they can't, they'll go closer to those markets, they'll produce it there, and they'll sell it into these markets. So we're giving people you know, indications all the time of where to put your money, and increasingly people are wondering, you know, are they making the right decision? You talk to, I talk to boards of directors of multinationals all the time, and they're really, really trying hard to figure out what our policy environment is going to be because they're making capital decisions they've got to stick with for 40 years, 50 years, uh, and they can ride out, you know, this president and that president, but they can't ride out all of this uncertainty. Uh, and that's what I think a lot of people in the private sector are grasping with. So everybody has heard of the Keystone Pipeline, I presume, in this room. Uh, but this is an interesting story, and I won't go into the politics behind it, but, you know, intended to bring uh, oil from our, our very stable supplier of Canada all the way down to the Gulf to refine it and be able to pick up a lot of stuff that stranded assets along the way uh, in North Dakota and other places and greatly expand North American energy security. Well, for a whole host of reasons, which we won't get into at this point, uh, the pipeline has not been permitted and has actually been technically rejected uh, by the president. It is still trying to get its application approved. But in the meantime, when, in the four years that this has been going on, what has happened is that we've actually put on the sidelines a lot of jobs. You know, the oil sands already support 80,000 jobs, and we could have greatly increased that by expanding the production of the oil sands by almost to 600,000 jobs. It would obviously create construction jobs for the pipeline itself, but it would also create, oh, look at that number again down at the bottom, a lot of revenue for our country. Property taxes, state revenue, GDP increase, $80, $800 billion. And that's another stimulus package. And so I begin to look at it through, what are the biggest problems right now we're facing in the United States? It's jobs and the deficit. And energy actually can resolve a lot of both of those problems if we let it. And that's the way we have to start talking about is jobs and revenue, energy security, trade and balance. This is what it means, and this is how other countries are looking at it. And for somehow we haven't decided that energy is strategic enough to be thought of that way. So what are we doing on the other side of the ledger? What are we doing on electricity? We know electricity is going to go up in terms of demand. We know we're going to need more when the economy recovers. Uh, what have we been building? Well, the answer is we were building in the beginning part of this decade, and now we're not really building anything. We built a lot of natural gas capacity, which is good for us right now. We built a little bit of wind, but right now we're actually building very little. And it takes some time to build some things and get the permit and bring it back up again. So we're actually facing what is our, our own regulators think is an impending reliability crisis of our entire grid. Uh, and that is hugely problematic for an economy trying to get back up on its feet. I said I'd just briefly touch on nuclear. Uh, prior to Fukushima, there were, and hasn't changed post-Fukushima, but I just want to put it in those sort of the timeline, uh, there were 26 applications for new reactors pending in front of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Some of them are here in Texas, predominantly in the southeast, but in some other parts of our country. Uh, but when the process started some eight, ten years ago for the permitting process, a new nuclear plant cost about a billion, a billion and a half dollars. 
Did it cost about $8 billion? And so these are very expensive propositions. Uh, it, they're more expensive because the actual the inputs are more expensive, but it also is because it's taking so long, it's a time cost of money. One plant is getting built. It's moving forward. It's the Voto plant in Georgia built by the Southern Company. Uh, but many of the other plants uh, have either been withdrawn from the permitting process or they've actually sort of ceased the, the activity, but they don't want to lose their place in line when they get some better clarity about what might happen. Uh, and so this is, you know, this is troubling in that we're going to need a lot of capacity. This is emissions-free. It's reliable power. Uh, these are all in places that previously had nuclear reactors. The communities are desirous of these, or at least accepting of these. But we are actually on nuclear hold, completely on nuclear hold. Uh, what's happening in the rest of the world? China today is building 20 nuclear reactors. Ten of one design that happens to be Westinghouse and ten of a French design. Uh, they had indicated to both of those companies that they would actually be building 50 of each. They've said after 10 of this and 10 of this, we got a better idea. We like a little bit of what you've got in this design, a little bit of what you've got in this design, so we're going to combine the two and have our own design. So thank you very much, but the rest of them will be built by the, by the Chinese design. So 100 new reactors in China, they're going to be competing in the international market. The Middle East is building reactors, Latin America, Africa, Asia not Japan, uh, and very little in Europe. Uh, and so we have to look at what's happening in nuclear around the world. And I have to tell you, you know, I used to be in the non-proliferation, I used to be in the nuclear weapons business. Um, I would feel a lot better that a new reactor that was being built somewhere was being built with US manufactured parts than somebody else's parts. Uh, and what we've basically said with the, the, you know, is that we're not in the manufacturing business anymore because we've got no market. Nobody's going to set up that type of capability here. But that is a really long-term vulnerability for us because we're not going to know what are in these reactors and we're not going to know how to help when there's a problem with one of these reactors, God willing, God forbid. Uh, and so uh, that's a, something that also that keeps me awake at night. We're missing a near-term opportunity in terms of the manufacturing and getting the nuclear business back up on its feet, but we're missing a longer-term opportunity to actually be part of the renaissance of nuclear power and own that intellectual property that will keep these things safe. So I said I would mention coal. Uh, you know, is coal on its back and dying because we're not building anymore? I mean, coal's share of our electricity uh, used to be 50%, it's down to 39% today. That's over two-year decline. Can you imagine of an industry that lost 11% market share uh, that quickly? But you don't hear the coal guys crying all that much. You know why? They're exporting coal. Exports are up 40%. In fact, we are producing more coal today than we were two years ago because we're exporting coal. And we are exporting coal principally to Asia. Exports to Korea are up 65%, up 85% to China. And so what we do is we take most of our good kind of coal out of the Powder River Basin in Colorado. We're putting it on rails. We're taking it out through British Columbia and through ports in Seattle. And we're shipping it to China. It goes into power plants that are powering manufacturing facilities that are making goods that are put back on vessels and shipped back to us. We buy them. That sounds like a really stupid policy, doesn't it? So you can either do one thing, with, we're not going to export any more of it. Well, we're sort of a free market country, so that doesn't work. Well, wouldn't it be smarter if we actually developed the technology so that we could use that coal here more cleanly? Uh, and then we could sell the technology, uh, because there's a lot of coal around the world. And what this shows is where coal is being produced right now. It's being produced in Europe. It's being produced in the Soviet Union. It's being really produced in Asia. But guess what? The demand for Asia is outstripping the supply, which is why they're buying ours. Uh, so we've got to rationalize our coal policy here because we've made it too difficult uh, for any utility to build a new coal fire plant because 
they don't really understand what uh, the EP regulations are going to be. So that's another troubling thing of what the, where the market balance is going in terms of the coal market. These are our friends at the EPA, and I say that uh, with a great deal of humility. Uh, they are really working hard. These are all of the regulations between 2010 and 2013. I have a new chart that goes out to 2014, but there's some blanks in it because we don't know how many they're going to be. Uh, but these are all the regulations as it relates to greenhouse gas emissions, water quality, air quality, and I have absolutely no problem with regulation. I think we need good regulation. We do. Everybody wants clean air. They deserve clean air and clean water. Uh, but what the problem is with all of these happening in such a short period of time and nobody understands how they interrelate to one another, nobody's housed, nobody knows what to buy, what type of equipment to put in their power plants, what type of, you know, nobody knows what the expectations and the requirements and the standards are going to be. So we looked at this after the graphics department gave us to me and I said, okay, you know what, I'm not smart enough to figure this out. I'm going to go to the smartest people we know in Washington, D.C. We're going to go to the people that do all the modeling for the federal government the Science Applications International Corporation, SAIC. They own the model that the Department of Energy actually uses. And we're going to say, take this, model it for us, tell us what the impacts are going to be in terms of all the different uh, types of pollutants that they are supposed to be regulating, tell us what it's going to do to our, our GDP, to our economy, and tell, we gave them about 10 metrics that we wanted to know. And off they went. I thought, oh, this is brilliant. You know, we're going we're gonna to win the Nobel for figuring this out. Well, they came back four months later. Uh, we had a very interesting meeting. They came in with some very long faces and sort of tails between their legs, all of these PhD economists and modelers. And they said, this is the first time we've ever had a meeting like this with a client. We can't do it. I said, what do you mean you can't do it? I mean, these are all published regulations. He said, we can't figure out how they're all going to fit together. We said, if you can't figure it out, the government certainly doesn't know, what are we doing? And no wonder nobody knows how to meet any of these regulations, because they're not sure. I mean, here in Texas, you've got some very unique problems with the cross-state air pollution rule and other things that you didn't think you were going to have to comply with. You know, and utilities are having to make decisions, saying, all right, well, you know what, I don't, I don't want to be out of attainment. I don't want to be fined. I'm just going to shut down. Uh, or I'm just not going to build anything. And therefore, we're not going to know if we're going to have enough electricity two years, five years from now. So this is what we're dealing with, and that was a big lesson. And we presented that uh, to EPA and to the White House. Uh, and um, it didn't seem to make the type of impact that it had on us. But uh, unfortunately, that is what we're dealing with. And you know, like it or not, you, you know, this is a regulatory process that goes on no matter who's in the White House. Uh, and we have to come to grips that we've got a regulatory process and a regulatory bureaucracy that is just out of control. Uh, and there's actually really no breaks on the system at the moment. We need to find a way to find some transparency, this, a timeline that makes sense, and an understanding by the private sector of what they need to be investing in, because they're willing to accept regulation if they can just navigate it. And so this has been the outcome of that. This is sort of a, I don't know, a green banana. This is my banana slide. Remember the build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone? So we said, I wonder what all of this is having. What type of impact is this having on the energy industry? So we looked at all of the energy projects that have been proposed uh, in the last three years. What happened to them as they were going through the permitting process? Well, we found that close to 350 of them had been caught up in the permitting process, in the environmental permitting process specifically, and they had either been canceled, they had been litigated to death, or people had just withdrawn the, the applications. 
And we thought, well, that's going to be interesting. Of course, it's going to be all you know the things people don't want. It's going to be coal plants. It's going to be a nuclear plant. It's going to be all the usual suspects. Interestingly enough, it was not. 40% of the projects that actually were killed in the environmental permitting process were renewable. Wind projects, solar projects, this is sort of like equal opportunity discriminations. We don't want anything built. Uh, and so we talk a good game about wanting to be very diversified and wanting to have different types of energy, but we don't want it anywhere near us. And there's a lot of jobs. I mean, our economists tell us, although these are, these are numbers that I don't know that we, we necessarily would stake our entire credibility on, but they say there's a million jobs every year that were not created because of this, and a tremendous amount of investment. But we're doing it to ourselves. I mean, that's sort of the message is that these are things that we could actually change. We could make it easier to get a permit. We could actually make it more transparent. We could figure out how to slow down the regulatory process so that people could figure it out. Uh, yet we're unwilling to do that so people just quit. Uh, and that's a really bad sign for the United States. So let me just close with sort of going back to where we started, which was jobs, 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 and that's how people think. They think through their pocketbook, they think about high prices, and they think about jobs. The good news is, is the energy industry has a really great story to tell. When you look at over the last five years, overall, total non-farm jobs are down 3.2%. But jobs in the oil and gas industry are up 35%. That's a great story. Imagine if those jobs hadn't happened. I mean, we would be in a lot worse off in the economy. So what's really propping up the economy is the growth in energy jobs. And you think about what could actually really make a significant difference if we were able to actually create more of those jobs, more of that investment here, more of that revenue here. And I think that, that, spell, you know, that really speaks volumes to what is happening. That's from the, the Department of Labor. We didn't, we didn't make that up. So there's a really good news story about jobs, 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 and the opportunity that energy affords us. And people are on board. This is a, a, a public opinion poll that is done every January by the Pew Center. Uh, and they say, what do you want to deal with? And this time, uh, because of high gas prices, we've said, we've got to deal with our energy problem. Yeah, you probably should deal with the environmental problem. It's not quite as important. And they are not interested in talking about global warming anymore. I think that's actually a bad news story for the United States because this reflects, and, and I'll close on this, this reflects where the energy debate has now come. It didn't used to be a Republican issue or a Democratic issue. It wasn't, you know, you're environmentalist or not environmentalist. It was more regional, it was more bipartisan, and we got a lot of things done in the energy area. But now it has devolved into you're either for the environment or against the environment. If you're for energy, you must be against the environment. And we have let it be so polarized into this either-or conversation, and it reflects in polling. We say, well, if I'm for energy, I can't be concerned about global warming then, right? Well, absolutely not. We have to have an and conversation. We are all concerned about energy and the environment. You know, I tell my friends in the environmental community all the time, I said, not one of my business members wakes up in the morning and says, what am I going to do bad to the environment today? You know, of course not. Everybody wants to have and deserves clean water, clean air, and we want to be able to use energy more wisely. We want to be able to extract it more cleanly. We want to improve the systems that we have here and make uh, our system more efficient. But we have devolved into an either-or proposition. Uh, and I think that is a very frightening way that we are looking at it, and that means everything stops, because you can't be either or. It's going to have to be both uh, as we move forward. And so uh, that, that's the other thing that really concerns me. And, 
you know, if I woke up tomorrow morning and I was the, you know, the king of the United States and could develop our own energy policy, you know, this is what it would look like. It would be more like, you know, buckshot rather than the silver bullet. We would be doing a lot of everything. We would be dramatically improving our efficiency. We would, of course, be using more of our own oil and our own natural gas. We would certainly get serious about developing the technologies to use our own coal more cleanly here at home. We would figure out what we're going to do on nuclear and then stick to it so we're part of that nuclear puzzle around the world. We would really be serious about renewables rather than turning on the light switch and you know, on and off for renewables. Oh, today you're going to subsidy. No, tomorrow you're not. Yes, you are. No, you're not. We should stick with it and then get rid of it over time. You know, we've got to get beyond the nope syndrome. That's my other one, you know. Banana, nope, not on planet Earth. Uh, we don't, you know, that's, you know, NIMBY banana nope. If you remember nothing else, remember that. Who's that crazy lady talking about, you know, bananas and nope? Not dope, nope. Uh, so, you know, not on planet Earth. We gotta, we gotta get something built, you know? Otherwise, I tell you, the, 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 the transmission line right outside of Washington, D.C., by the American Electric Power Company, uh, they hate it when I tell this story, but it's true, uh, it took them 16 years to build a 130-mile transmission line. Doesn't that sound terrible? He said, well, tell the rest of the story. Well, it took them 14 years to get it permitted and then two years to construct it. And they're like, okay, as long as you say the second sentence, other we sound like, you know. Uh, but, you know, that's a 130-mile transmission line in China probably took 16 weeks. And it took us 16 years. That's just an unacceptable path for the 21st century that we are trying to compete in, with countries that are leapfrogging on, you know, over us left and right. Uh, and of course, my soapbox issues, which are investing in people and technology, because at the end of the day, the toolbox that we have today, even though it's dramatically different than the one we even had five years ago with, you know, shale and all, we're going to need more. We're going to need more advanced technologies to meet our energy needs for sure. And we're investing less in energy technology today than we were after the Arab oil embargo. That doesn't sound like a very good path forward. So we have to fix that uh, moving forward. And of course, over time, we're going to have to find a way to. Uh, involve the entire world in an achievable climate approach going forward. So, you know, we do a lot of work on this. We're pretty passionate about it, as you can see. Uh, and we spend a lot of time domestically and internationally trying to get more people, more business leaders to get some skin in the game, because at the end of the day, the outcome of the policy decisions will affect all of you individually, collectively, your businesses, your industries, your communities. Uh, and we're going to have to have it come from the outside into Washington, because I can tell you, Nobody in Washington was elected to Congress because they were an energy wonk. And so we need to put pressure on them to make the right decisions rather than what seems to be the politically convenient, wind-blowing, what put my finger up in the air decision, which is what's happening now. I don't fault them, but that's the way our political environment is at the moment. And so we need to be able to embolden them to make some bolder decisions uh, in Washington. And that's also at the state level, at the governor level. I spend a lot of time with governors. They're actually making some pretty good decisions right now uh, in spite of the federal government uh, trying to uh, you know, interfere in their in their uh, activities. So, if you're interested, we do a lot of work. Uh, that is our website. We have, you know, for all of you that are interested, we have Facebook, we have Twitter, we've got all the digital platforms. We're active in many states across the country. We all have state and local chambers. You have the Dallas Chamber here. I was here two weeks ago with Ambassador Overwater uh, with his membership. I'm going to the Arlington Chamber tomorrow. We've got a great network and a great opportunity to, I think, affect 
longer-term energy security in this country because I think we all have to recognize that what's at stake is not inconsequential. It is our national security. It is our economic competitiveness. It's not just the fact that we want to make sure we can turn the lights on. There's a lot behind that that a lot of other countries are investing in we're not. So thank you all very much. Now the bar's open again. You can go drown your sorrows. What does clean coal look like? That's a great question. Uh, you know, what we know is that we don't have it yet, right? In widely commercialized uh, formats, we know we're going to have to be able to sequester carbon. We know we're going to have to capture it. We know we're going to have to, you know, deploy the most ultra supercritical technology that's out there. We have one of those plants under construction that's not even at scale. By the way, China is building more advanced coal plants than we have today in our fleet. Uh, and at some point, we're going to have to be able to demonstrate carbon capture and sequestration at scale. We've canceled our project. Canada canceled theirs. Norway canceled theirs. Germany canceled theirs. Australia canceled theirs. You know, there's got to be a way that collectively we all know we have to do this. Uh, and there is, you know, opportunity for collaboration in that area. But, you know, people talk about clean coal. Uh, is it a lot cleaner today than it was 30 years ago? Absolutely. Are the extraction technologies better than they were 30 years ago? Absolutely. Is it where we need to be today? No. And certainly with all the different regulations that are coming out this year and next year, it makes the viability of any utility investing in a coal plant zip zero nada. Uh, until they understand what it's going to be. And in that interim, we should have been and should still be investing in those technologies, of which there are a broad uh, set. Uh, and it's the integration of the technologies uh, at scale that will ultimately prove whether we can or not. Canada's a little bit further ahead of us than we are right now. Uh, building the first integrated one, it's not yet in operation, but it will be next year. Uh, at, it's it's uh, associated with actually CO2 that we're shipping them for the project. Uh, but it's, there's a, there is a huge opportunity, and if we're going to see any type of uh, global look at CO2 emissions, we're going to have to address coal, because China's not going to stop using coal. Neither is India, neither is South Africa, neither is Brazil. Uh, and, but we are. Well, if we start looking at you know, global leadership and U.S. leadership, I mean, that's an area we can play a critical difference, uh, is really making sure that that resource over time is used in the most environmentally responsible way. And so it looks like something we don't have yet, uh, but it looks like something that we could certainly you know, do over time with the right amount of resources and the right amount of collaboration between the private and public sectors. You look like you have a loud voice. What would you like to see federal tax policy be towards energy? You know, there's a great debate on, you know, on whose back is the bullseye at the moment in the, in the tax debate. And, of course, we're going to have the tax debate because, you know, the Bush era tax cuts are coming to a close. We're going to have to, you know, address the federal deficit, and it's going to take some time and a lot of pain. And, and what is this all going to mean? You know, there are, um, when you, we talk about energy subsidies, uh, I think we have to be crystal clear about what is and what isn't a subsidy uh, and what that means and where our appetite is, what our appetite is for. When we look at uh, treatments within the IRS tax code that have been forever, there are those that don't like the oil and gas industry that want to say that's a subsidy. 
Well, if the depreciation of equipment is a subsidy, then every single industry in America gets a subsidy. If we're talking about an investment tax credit because we want to encourage investment you know, in a certain renewable technology, is that a subsidy? Yes, but we want to do that because we want the investment together. So somehow we've demonized this whole debate about what's a right subsidy, a subsidy, what's a good subsidy, and what's a bad subsidy. At the end of the day, we've done ourselves a great disservice in the renewable area by only extending them by very small increments, and that has undercut the ability for renewables to get the type of capital formation they need. In our view, and what we have advocated for, you know what, we're not going to be able to tolerate long-term subsidies for anything uh, with, our, with our economy. So what we should do is make an adult decision that extends the production tax credits in the renewable area for a defined amount of time, and then they go away. And that way the industry has that certainty, four years, five years. Four years ago we recommended eight years. Uh, and then they would go away. And that would have given a great deal of certainty back then. We're four years into it, and we're a lot poorer now, so I'm not sure we could afford eight years. Uh, it probably doesn't make sense, given the state of the industry now and the way they've been able to bring down the costs of some of these technologies. But a certain you know, manageable amount of time so that they could actually be able to build a business model and know that the subsidy was actually permanently sunsetting. But let's go up to the 30,000-foot level. You know, what are we going to do about corporate tax reform? We have the highest corporate tax rate in the developed world. We used to be number two. Japan just lowered theirs. We are now number one. We have the highest corporate tax rate in the entire developed world. Guess what? Guess who also just lowered theirs? Again, Canada. Canada did two interesting things. And they started looking at what we were doing here, and they knew how much money that they really wanted to attract into their economy. They did two things. They streamlined their permitting process for infrastructure from 40 agencies to three. And they set time deadlines on each part of the review process so you knew how long it was going to take. And at the same time, they lowered the tax rate to 18%. Money is flooding into Canada. Now, I don't know that we could go from 40 to three, and I certainly don't think we're probably going to go to 18%. But it's indicative of when somebody figures out what's really going to stimulate the economy, what you do. So we're going to look at this. I think if you talk to a broad section of, of corporate America, and we represent the entire cross-section of corporate America, everybody knows we need to have corporate tax reform. You get them all at the 30,000-foot level to say, I'm willing to give up every single one of my tax treatment subsidies, whatever you want to call it, in exchange for a lower tax rate. You say, well, what is that rate? Well, is it 28? Well, no, I can't do 28. I have to have 24. Well, I can't do it. I could do 26. So you get into that. But then they come back around at the end of the day after the meetings and they go, by the way, well, I didn't mean getting rid of this particular tax subsidy. I didn't really mean that one because that's not a subsidy. That's really something I really need for my business model. It is going to be ugly. It is going to be really ugly. But at the end of the day, I think there's going to be willingness that people are going to be, you know, for a simpler tax code, spending less money on trying to do your taxes in exchange for a lower corporate tax rate, uh, and maybe being able to bring some money back from overseas. You know, there's a grand bargain to be struck. It's not going to be struck this year. Can we have a question in the front? If you don't mind, we're podcasting. If you don't mind waiting for the mic real fast, sorry. How many barrels of oil equivalent do we use nowadays? In oil, we're using about 18 million every day. Uh, we used to, used to be, let's go back to Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon, I mean, obviously the quantity was less, but when Richard Nixon was president, we imported 30% of our oil and we produced 70. Three years ago, it was exactly the inverse. 
We imported 70% and we produced 30%. So you can see how great our energy policy has worked between Richard Nixon and three years ago, right? Uh, and our stated goal was to reduce our dependence on imported oil. So by any metric, we have completely failed uh, on the one you know, single metric that everybody agrees for our energy policy. Um, it is now less for two reasons. Number one, we've had a recession, so demand is down. No, three reasons. Number two, we are, are more efficient. Uh, in our cars and other ways. And number three, we're producing at home. We are producing some more at home, and that's good news. Uh, the really good news is that that trajectory can continue. And when you look at what we have here with oil, the potential of what we have in Canada, and over time what we might have uh, in oil shale in the middle part of our country, within 20 years we could be completely self-sufficient in North America for our liquid fuel needs. That is a game changer for us in terms of geopolitics, in terms of economic competitiveness. I mean, all aspects of our prosperity would be hugely impacted positively. Uh, but we're also going to need all kinds of renewables. We're going to need other kinds of transportation. We're going to need all of those things. It's not instead of those. We're going to need it all. But we would certainly be less vulnerable. And certainly with continued efficiency in our vehicle fleet, we'll continue to see that improve. Um, and then we have to get on the debate of biofuels, but we won't go there now. Uh, following on to what you just said about uh, all of the potential production over the next few years after having just read many, many oil and gas company annual reports and listening to conference calls and all the other stuff I've read, uh, there are just massive amounts of money pouring into oil and gas, drilling, development, building pipelines, processing, storage, Canada and the United States. Um, with all that ad additional production that we're capable of in new technologies, uh, how much does it matter what uh, China's demand is or other parts of the world if, if we're able to uh, continue to grow our, our uh, development sure. here and rely less and less on imports? No, great question, uh, and it, there's a, there's a two-part answer to that. Uh, you know, we're, we have a very interesting uh, market right now in terms of gas. You know, today natural gas here is $2, and in Japan it's $15. Uh, but the spread on oil is very, very different. I mean, you know, our price for oil is basically set on the global market. We have a little bit of a difference between, you know, West Texas Intermediate and, and prices set in Europe. But for all intents and purposes, they're normally right on top of each other. Uh, there's a little bit of margin in there. So on the oil side of things, uh, for the foreseeable future, it will most likely be uh, a, 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 a price that is set on the global market. That being said, uh, our ability to weather, if you imagine if we were self-sufficient here in North America, right, uh, and the Straits of Hormuz were shut down, we would be in a much different position than if we were importing the amount that we are importing today through the Straits of Hormuz. So there are other reasons besides just price, right, to, to actually become more self-sufficient. And also, our trade imbalance would look a lot different. I mean, the money would be invested here, manufacturing would be here, because the product would be nearby. In natural gas, I think we're still going to see for the foreseeable future a market that doesn't come together. We're not going to have one global gas market yet, because they are still regional, uh, sub-regional markets. Some time ago, again, when I was back in government and we had no idea we were sitting on this, this uh, the amount of natural gas, uh, the Russians came up with the idea of making a GOPEC. 
which was the gas equivalent of OPEC, which of course we fought tooth and nail. But at that point, you know, what we saw was going to be a global priced, you know, uh, uh, go, and they were going to, you know, go forward. Well, fortunately, that didn't happen, and now it doesn't make any sense because we've got these regional pockets. But on the gas side of things, it has a different impact. Right now, you look at, for example, Dow Chemical. Dow Chemical left this country. It set up all of its chemical production facilities in the Middle East, two reasons. Number one, they were close to you know, natural gas, and it was cheap. Uh, and now Dow Chemical has come back to the Gulf of Mexico. They just invested $4 billion in a new chemical facility here because there is natural gas here. Uh, and they know it's going to be relatively affordable as compared to, you know, what they were going to be seeing in the increase in price in the Middle East. So there's, you know, industrial benefit uh, and job benefit uh, to this changing market uh, over time. But I don't think we're going to see one natural gas price around the world, you know, quite yet. We have time for one more question, and I think somebody already has a mic. Sorry, uh, <clears throat> with the uh, dependence on uh, in your charts, on natural gas being the fuel that's growing the fastest and the least expensive, uh, how dependent on uh, future increases in price, uh, how dependent is that supply upon having the price rise above where it is today to be allowed to, to be profitable enough to extract it? And it's sort of a corollary to that is does, what has to happen in areas, for example, the Marcellus, where there's no drilling because of uh, 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 fear of fracking and other uh, technologies where the, the gas is sure. there, but it's not being extracted. I mean, there is, you know, you've been on all the analyst calls. I mean, I'm, you've been, there is no CEO will tell you that they have any business model built on $2 gas. They just don't, which is why you've seen, uh, I don't have this chart, but uh, drilling rigs, you know, we have the amount of drilling rigs we have in the United States, the amount dedicated to natural gas has gone like this, and the amount to oil has gone like this, responding to the market and, and prices, clearly. But there's also pressures on uh, some of the gas companies, the gas producers, that they have leases that they have to produce on or they lose. They lose them, which is further suppressing the price and keeping it where it is. Um, if anybody tells you they know where it's going to go in the next two years, you know, I'd love to talk to them and so would Wall Street. Uh, but if you talk, if you say, what is the price that's actually going to allow you to you know, produce comfortably with a margin that is going to be responsive to your shareholders and you're not going to be out there making it, you know, a killing. You know, reasonable people say that it's $6, uh, that, you know, that's where they need to be. Uh, I think now when they're looking at it, it's going to take a while to get to $6. You might see that revised downwards because they're getting some efficiencies in their systems because they have to. So that might even be lower than $6. I mean, I don't think, I don't think we're going to see $12. I mean, at the... You know, the highest we've ever seen in this country was, you know, close to 15. That was right after the hurricanes Katrina and Rita, and that was all just because of, you know, market pressures. But, you know, that's that's where they would feel most comfortable, I think. You talk to the, uh, the Dow Chemicals of the world, you know, that have moved back to the United States. And I said to them, you didn't move back here thinking you were going to have $2 gas either. So I know you're making a killing now, uh, but you probably have a business model that was based more along, you know, uh, $6 as well. So, I mean, that looks like to be sort of a happy medium. Uh, whether it stays there over the long term, I mean, business models will evolve. It goes to 8 uh, you know, whatever stays at 5 uh, But there's a sweet spot in there, you know, between 5 and 8 that people can reason reasonably operate and, and on both the consumption and the production side. On the fracking side of things, you know, we now have a pretty significant, um, you know, folks on the ground working in Ohio and Pennsylvania and West Virginia and New York trying to 
really understand what is and what isn't happening. Uh, there's a lot of mythology out there. There's, you know, there's two things you never touch of anybody's besides their wallet. Uh, it's their parking space and their water, right? Uh, so take the parking spaces out of it. I mean, there's been a lot of fear mongering that this is potentially, you know, contaminating groundwater. You don't, you don't screw with groundwater. That affects the entire, you know, nation. Uh, and the EPA got a little exuberant and issued some, you know, pretty serious threats and pretty serious conclusions that this was affecting the groundwater. In all three cases, they had to backtrack and said, "Oops, we were wrong." Well, that didn't help the debate. Uh, for our own regulatory agents to come in and say, stop, we're going to start delivering water because it's been contaminated, and then have to come back and say, you know what? Um, our, our test didn't bear that out. So they're going to be paying for that for quite some time, I'm sure, uh, in court. But the damage has been done, uh, and the industry needs to come forward. They need to get earn the confidence of the communities. They need to be able to pro prove to people that this is safe. They need to be able to prove to people that they're in a place and they've got the technology, the people, the resources to respond in case something does happen, because nothing is risk-free. Uh, and then the communities need to understand what the benefits are. You know, there are revenue benefits, there are job benefits, there are, you know, investment benefits, there are community benefits, but it has to be a balanced conversation, it has to be held very soberly, we have to understand the trade-offs, and it doesn't have to be done in this grand hysteria. I mean, I look at what happened today. The governor of Vermont signed a permanent fracking van in Vermont. There's no shale in Vermont. <laughs> So it's just something fun to do, right? Well, I mean, that doesn't help. I mean, he's making a political statement, you know, that, uh, you know, this is what my ideology is. Well, that's not helpful. You know, nobody, I mean, do you think that the people, you know, in, in Missouri know that there's no shale in Vermont? No, but they know that he's the first governor that banned fracking in Vermont. So we've gotten into a little bit of hysteria. We've had Gasland. Um, you're younger than I am. What's the famous actor? Um, Oh, anyway, he's going to be starring in a docudrama about fracking uh, that they're going to start filming uh, in Oklahoma very, very soon. Matt Damon. Um, we ha we've got all kinds of things out there. We've got the New York Times, you know, writing front page articles about all this stuff, and then all of a sudden the public editor uh, who's responsible for, you know, checking the facts has written twice, and they're saying, this is full of errors. This is not accurate. This is not good journalism. So that's, I go back to how I sort of ended my talk about, you know, we've become either or in this conversation. We need to be a little bit more sophisticated and adult, rely on the facts, let science guide us, understand and be willing to understand that there is absolutely no source of energy that is risk-free. I mean, otherwise we're all going to go back to the dark ages. And even if we wanted to cook our food over fire, we're going to cause, you know, emissions. So that's not even an option. So we have to, you know, if we're going to go to more wind, we're going to have to be willing to tolerate these certain things. If we're going to have more, we have to understand that we are going to have some risk going forward. And we have to expect out of industry, out of our regulators, the safest environment possible. Uh, but understand that, you know, we are, still going to we are still going to need a lot of energy. And it's going to have to come from somewhere. And it should, more, more of it should come from here than elsewhere. Thank you very much. Really For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.